with a, um, a strong emphasis on intention. Uh, we had the whole series of interviews the first day. When people talked about their, you talked about your intentions for the retreat. James talked quite a bit about intentions. Uh, knowing our deepest purpose, our deepest intention. And even though we've talked about it already, I would like to talk about it some more, talk about it again at least. Um, partly because it's so important. It's such an, the intention is such an important theme in life, in Buddhist practice, and in the teachings of Buddhism. So tonight's talk is on uh, intention and karma, karma and intention. The heart of, or the kind of core, part of the core of mindfulness practice is a deep appreciation of the present moment and the possibilities that arise in the present moment, the possibilities that arise in the present moment when we're present and awake for the present. So an appreciation of the present and an appreciation of the possibilities inherent in the present. With the appearance of each moment, there appears a creative possibility of how we choose to respond. I talked in my earlier talk about the two categories, uh, what's happening and how we respond. And how we respond is, is, uh, belongs to the world of creative possibilities. It's a creative moment when we choose how we're going to respond. There's a Zen story, or a koan, kind of a Zen challenge. And the challenge is to, um, uh, to respond to the question, what do you do when you get to the top of a hundred foot pole? So kind of the idea behind the story is the hundred foot pole is, uh, the, the, is the path of practice. And when you get to the top of the pole, you're kind of reached the culmination of your practice. So what do you do when you get to the top of practice? You get to, you've kind of got some kind of attainment or some stability or something. And one of the usual answers is uh, you don't just slide back down, um, but you step off. And stepping off a 100-foot pole is like stepping off into the unknown, into space. And it you know, seems like a scary thing to do, or maybe unreasonable thing to do. But the question is, how do we, every moment, and then the Zen story usually goes a little bit further, in a sense, every moment we find ourselves on top of a 100-foot pole. And every moment we're actually stepping off uh, with our intention, with the choices we make. And do we step into the next moment with, with what intent? Do we step forward to the next moment with stress or with guilt or shame or aversion or joy or delight or love or friendliness to the next moment? How do we step forward into the next moment? How do we respond to that creative offering that the present moment gives us? So I think most of you know that Buddhism does not put emphasis or rely at all on any kind of external savior that's going to do it for you, that's going to save you or make things fine for you. Um, not even another person. Uh, usually, the usual understanding, especially in Theravada Buddhism, is that uh, the teacher is not a guru who can fix you but rather a teacher is someone who's your friend who's pointing the way for you. Uh, but they're not going to do it for you. They're not going to walk the path for you. You have to do it for yourself. Um, so Buddhism does not, does, not, does not rely on an external savior, but rather 
in Buddhist practice, we rely on our own ability, our own powers of mindfulness and responsiveness. Mindfulness and responsiveness. We rely on our abilities to respond and to be mindful of what's happening. But because of this, we need to understand this creative possibility um, uh, more deeply, more fully. Uh, and for this, we need to understand, we need to appreciate causality, the cause and effect. Not just simply to see things, you know, as they are in that particular moment, but to see actually there's a cause and effect flow, stream of cause and effect that goes on all the time. Now, I find it very interesting, um, a statement by the Dalai Lama, and um, a number of people have been kind of confused over the last days about the emphasis on no self and emptiness and what is this all about. And you might be uh, somewhat relieved to learn that the Dalai Lama, and this, he echoes uh, something that's been said by many Buddhist teachers, Dalai Lama said, we should understand causality before emptiness or no self. Otherwise, we have no foundation for personal responsibility. The teaching of uh, causality is primary, goes before the teachings on emptiness. Uh, but, you know, in America we do things upside down. So it follows to this retreat. Now, causality. If you take a uh, small pond with this, this still forest pond, a still pond, and you throw in a um, stone in the middle of it, and you have these ripples of little waves that kind of radiate out, right? So the ripples are going out. And then you throw in another rock into the pond, kind of nearby, and that creates another ripple of concentric waves that kind of go out from that. And, but this time, these two, the two waves and the two stones will hit each other, and the waves will affect each other. And you get a, they'll hit each other, and then you'll get a kind of movement of new waves in a new direction. And then if you keep throwing in stones in, into the pond, you keep stirring up and creating more ripples but they don't go very far but because they keep running into each other and you get this infinite kind of interplay of different waves striking each other, some canceling each other out and uh, some um, uh, accelerating one and, and uh, then that one bumps into the next one and it becomes just, you know, pretty quickly you can see it becomes this great lattice of, uh, of, of different waves doing all kinds of things. Now if you take a toy duck And you put the toy duck into that little pond with all the waves going in all kinds of directions and continue putting your stones in. Um, which of those stones is, is affecting the bobbing up and down of the toy duck? Can you point to the stone that's responsible for the bobbing up and down? I think you can't. I think all the stones are responsible because all the stones are interacting to create this tremendous web of interactive waves which are hitting each other and doing all kinds of things to each other as they ripple out in all kinds of ways and ricochet off each other and things like that. That all the stones are, are responsible in some ways for the bobbing up of the, of the duck. And when you start looking at causality, cause and effect, and what, what, the cause and the, what the causal nexus is for any given moment, it's like that. You can't really find one particular cause. You find a whole rippling of everything that's ever happened before, in a sense, uh, come together at this particular moment. 
And, uh, and the pollen example is an example of physical causality. And you understand it gets pretty quick, pretty complicated very quickly just in the pond, let alone outside the pond everywhere else. But in, a, in a kind of addition to physical causality, there is what we can maybe call psychological causality, or the, psych the, the causality of our inner life, the cause and effect relationships within us. The, relationships, the cause and effect relationships involving our thoughts, imaginations, emotions, um, you know, all those intentions within us. And sometimes uh, all these things can interact in the same chaotic way that, uh, that the waves in a little pond can if you put in a few dozen stones, one after the other. But Buddhism, the Buddha wanted to distinguish somewhat between physical causality and this inner causality of, we could call psychological causality or mental causality, the inner causality of these things. And the Buddhist, Buddhist way of talking about this inner psychological causality is under the idea of karma. And this is a very important a distinction because karma doesn't mean all causality in the Buddhist uh, definition. It refers to that, that subset of causality which has to do with this inner, our inner life in a sense of what we intend and the choices we make. Now, karma can be seen by some people, and has been seen historically this way, sometimes in Asia, as belonging to a metaphysical world. Uh, some, it's, uh, karma is this kind of this great balance sheet in the sky that keeps tabs of all your good and bad actions and somehow tallies them all up and figures out, you know, absolutely what should happen. Um, and this idea suggests that there's an absolute law of cause and effect, that if you do A, B will happen absolutely, no, no bones about it. However, this is not the Buddhist understanding of this karma, of this uh, inner psychological working of cause and effect. And now, I also want to distinguish that karma is not a fanciful idea or theory having to do with rebirth, which is what some people think. It's also not a theory of justice, which is what some people hope. <laughs> you know, they look around them and say, you know, that person did that and such and such a terrible thing, but it's okay because they're going to get their just rewards in the next lifetime or something. And so justice will happen no matter what. And unfortunately, this is not the Buddhist understanding of how it works, at least in my studies of this. It's not, and it's a little bit unfortunate because we all want justice. We want to make sure that things work themselves out. It's also not a teaching or theory of predetermination, that things are predetermined. It's helpful, to, helpful in understanding the Buddhist, uh, Buddha's teaching on karma to understand some of the popular or common theories of cause and effect that existed at the time of the Buddha. One of the most popular ones was that our, our happiness and our unhappiness is controlled by gods, which is a common one people have often felt in the world. And so because it was controlled by gods, uh, the ancient Greek gods were kind of like the Greek gods, and so uh, ancient Indian gods were kind of like the Greek gods, and so you had to do a lot of rites and rituals to appease them. You wanted, if your happiness was dependent on, on their whims, then you better do nice things and get them get uh, in their, on their good side. And so it didn't really matter what your intention was, what your inner desires was. 
what your inner heart was like. All that mattered was you went through the right motions, made the right offerings, and chanted the right mantras, and the gods would hear that. The gods weren't listening to what was going on in your heart, and they would listen to that. And if you wanted to do really terrible, evil things, but you wanted to get some kind of spiritual power, um, the gods didn't care whether it was great evil or great good. Um, all they cared for was that you gave them lots of donations, lots of sacrifices, and then they'd give you some power, and you would get some, uh, you know, get your way in the world. And um, so this was very common. And uh, the uh, Brahmins of ancient India were the priest class that performed all these rites and rituals. And the Buddha was, uh, was not interested in that, was pointing away from that kind of causality. The other one uh, popular theory um, is that everything is predetermined. For example, your past karma, your past actions, there's a mechanical rigidity that no matter what you do in the past, you will get always the same results in the future. Or there's an absolute, you know, once you've done something in the past, there's no way of avoiding the karma from that activity. And the third theory was that cause and effect couldn't be determined. It was too complicated or just too vague or there was no absolute cause and effect. It was all kind of random. God just plays dice and um, it's chance, it's luck. Spiritual practice was just luck. You know, you sit down and if you're lucky, you have a nice sitting and if you're not lucky, well, so much, you know, you have something else happens, but just luck, which is maybe how some of you feel. <laughs> So the Buddha said, quoting him, anyone who says, this person has performed this karma and so now is subject to this karma, leaves no room for leading the spiritual life because she or he is blind to the way that leads to complete elimination of suffering. He's saying that if you believe that there's a kind of a one-to-one relationship between cause and effect, that if you do this, that you will absolutely get those kinds of fruits, no matter what. That then there's no space for a life that, that stops some of those fruits, because if the past actions cause suffering, and all your suffering is due to past actions, then there's no possibility of finding some way to be, find release from that. There's no, spiritual, there's no spiritual path or spiritual life unless there is some possibility of choice, some possibility of, of, um, of choosing a new way of being, some possibility of ending the endless chain of cause and effect. So the Buddha then redefined in his times the word karma to mean intention. So in the, for the Brahmanical religions, karma meant rites and rituals. The Buddha said the rites and rituals are not the point. If you want the purification of your heart, it's not rites and rituals, but you have to look in your heart at what moves you, at what your motivation is, at what your intention is. And this inner life of intentions is kind of what I call the psychological consequences, the psychological or inner cause and effect. And intentions can have, be, have, are, can be extremely powerful, powerfully consequential even if they're not acted on, even if they just they stay in the level of just a mental intention. Intentions are kind of like seeds. And we, uh, we, we have certain intentions, it's like planting seeds. And the question is, what kind of garden are you trying to grow? 
Certain kinds of seeds will produce one kind of garden, tend to produce one kind of garden, and another kind of seed tends to produce another. There's a story uh, from Tibet of um, a monk who was going to go to, off to India to pilgrimage. And so his elderly, devout mother asked him to bring back a relic. In India, they used to have a lot of relics of the Buddha and holy arhats and holy saints, and the relics were considered to have a lot of power. So she asked him, when you go, back, go to India, bring back a relic for me. He said, sure. And uh, he went off on his adventure, and he was coming back, and he was just a half an hour back from his village, almost home from his long trek to India. India. And he remembered, oh, my mother. <laughs> I said I'd bring a relic. <laughs> And I forgot. So uh, he, um, he said, what do I do? So he looked around and there was a, um, uh, a piece of a bone from a dead, you know, some long dead um, animal on the side of the road. And so he picked up a little piece of this bone and he brought it to the mother and said, oh, this is a relic of some great holy sage of India. And she said, great. And so she took it and she would do all these prayers and, and, and on, with the relic and pray for people's healing and pray for her own healing and, and, um, and uh, you know, have all this great and good intent that she would kind of dedicate based on the good merit that's in, in this relic. And all these miraculous things started happening to the mother, you know, and the people around her got well and they prospered and it was just great. And the idea behind the story is that it's not the relic but rather it's the purity of heart, it's the intention of the mother which counted. And she had all this good intent for the people around her she wanted to cure. And she poured that good intent you know, through the relic, but the relic was not a relic. So again, this moving away from rites and rituals, moving away from crystals and all these things that will do it for us, and focusing rather on this, this adamantine uh, quality of the heart, uh, our volition, our intention, our motivation that we have. Um, and intention has a lot to do with choices, the choices we make. So an example of some of these things, I'm not always so good at coming up with examples, but um, this one occurred to me because, um, partly because I, I went and, and uh, taught some years ago at a federal women's prison and I um, was really struck by some of the women. I was going to teach a day of mindfulness, a kind of a one-day retreat. And they had done, they had, some of them had done a lot of practice before and in the prison. And I was struck by one woman who was in prison for many, many years and um, was going to be in prison for many more years. And she had dedicated her life in prison to um, spiritual practice, to meditation and yoga. And, and I felt like a little bit like she was supposed to be the teacher, you know, I showed up to do this thing, you know, and she was a shining, radiant being, and just full presence and, and full kind of composure and, and, uh, and real intent on presence and compassion and wakefulness. And, and I could see in her the years of, of intention of, you know, her dedication. And I was inspired by her. So the example I, wanted, I thought of, kind of inspired by her, is an example of two people who can go to prison and at the same time, same length of, uh, same prison, same length of time, 
And they can hold very different intentions while they're in prison. One person can have the intention to um, to do the, to kind of develop a pure heart, to develop mindfulness, wakefulness, to develop compassion and understand themselves deeply. And someone else's intention can be an intention of uh, regret, of resentment, of criticism, of blame. Um, how could society have done this to me? How could anyone have done this to me? And and spend the time doing actions based on that intention of aversion, of hate, of anger. And they both spend those, those, two, those, those time in jail, and I bet they come out very, very different people, uh, depending on the consequences of those two, two choices. Um, there is this... Um, uh, Brian Keenan was a British hostage for four years in Lebanon. And he said that um, uh, he claimed that he had no desire for vengeance against his captors because vengeance is self-maiming and he had no intention of maiming himself. Um, and you know, even in the most extreme circumstances, we can choose whether we meet it with fear and hatred or with compassion, understanding, and acceptance. And for me, that truth is something that I can't always do that. It's very hard to meet great difficult circumstances. But uh, to know that that's a possibility is something that inspires me and something that I, I, I'm inspired to try to uh, live my life by. Um, I was very inspired by my wife. You know, I told you about this accident. You know, they're both completely fine. Uh, some people were concerned. I didn't tell you the end of the story. But, um, you know, they had this accident, and I was pretty angry uh, hearing about uh, this person who, um, you know, it was a head-on collision, and the person who hit them was uh, speed racing, we think, um, passing someone else in a curve. And so he just plowed into her because, you know, she was in her lane. And so I was pretty angry. And, um, and, um, you know, it was okay to be angry. I didn't feel like I was a bad person for being angry, but, you know, I, you know, I didn't feel great about being angry, exactly. You know. But I was angry. But then I went to the hospital to see my wife. And it turned out that she had um, uh, had to go in the, they got, only got about one ambulance. And um, there was, and so they took her, our son, and this guy in the same ambulance. And, uh, and he, he was in a lot worse shape than they were. And um, so my wife told me that um, she also was angry at him, but she didn't you know, feel so good about being angry. And so she thought, well, if, if, I make this, if, I make, if I make him more of a real person, maybe I'll have a little bit different feelings for him. So I'll ask him his name. And, just, and so I asked him his name, and he told me his name, and, and so I kind of felt a little bit better about him. And I was, I was, kind of, I was very moved, actually, that, by that, that my wife had the intention at least to try to... I don't think she felt bad about being angry, but she had the intention to, um, to see, could there be another way? Could she meet this situation in a different way? And she had this little idea that I can ask him his name and make him you know, more than just a face, but someone who's more real. And maybe then I could have a little bit more of a... Of a real connection with him. 
So even the most extreme circumstances, we can choose whether to meet it with fear and hatred or with compassion and understanding. And um, But two people can make the same choice, but with very different motivations. So maybe the prison example wasn't so good because it's not their choice to be in prison. Two people can be of service and have very different motivations for being of service. You know, maybe the service is uh, as simple as uh, helping a neighbor, an elderly neighbor who needs help. And uh, one person helps because they know the elderly neighbor is, gonna, is very wealthy, he's going to die soon, and if we help enough, maybe uh, you'll get an inheritance from them. Another person uh, just feels compassion for the elderly neighbor who can't seem to get around much and needs some help. And, and let's just, you know, it seems like this person needs my help and I'll go over there and help. And, and there's no, no self-concern in offering the help. The point being that the same choice done with a different intention has, a lot, has very different consequences in this inner causality. Um, it's not so clear externally how it might take fruit, but internally the way that it conditions our heart or our minds is radically different depending on the quality and the nature of the intention. Different motivations bear different fruits. There's a Zen story. Um, I'll tell you a couple of stories of, um, you know, how do you meet challenging circumstances, especially when um, maybe you're responsible for a mistake. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, we're challenged, we find out we've made a mistake, we've met, we've, we've, you know, the Dalai Lama can laugh and say, I made a mistake. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. It's a problem. I tried to have notes today, so I'd stick to it. <laughs> Here we go. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> the um, I'll start with this story. Um, I was sick some weeks ago. Had a little cold, and and um, and you know I was kind of worn down and tired. Didn't have much energy, and I'd been sick for a couple of days, a few days. And one day, it was a Friday, I think, and I was getting better, but I didn't have much energy still. I was kind of still pretty tired from being sick. But I was basically, you know, getting well, basically well. And um, out of the blue, kind of, someone had decided to send us or our son a, a, um, these outdoor play sets that, you know, look kind of big, kind of look like fort-like with a slide. It comes from Toys R Us. And uh, UPS showed up with it and said, this is for you. And I said, oh. And I said, okay, you know, put it there. It was kind of misty, a little bit outside, windy and kind of cold. And I'd been sick for a number of days and I was tired, and, but I was uncomfortable. I was bored and restless. So I thought, I didn't think. <laughs> Maybe that was a problem. But I didn't like the restlessness and the, and the boredom, so I, so I was looking for something to do to make things make life better. And this wonderful set showed up. It had to be assembled. 
and the instruction said can be assembled in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, I'm kind of smart. You know, I can probably, you know, you know, I can probably figure it out in 20 minutes. So I started assembling it. It was windy and, driz- and drizzling, and I was out doing it outside, and, and it was. I, I guess I'm not so smart. <laughs> and, uh, and I got this, I had to get this mallet, and it was pounding away, and trying to fit it in, and this, and that. And finally, I got it all done. And I was exhausted, and I was really drained, and you know, this. And so this tiredness, you know, really was drained. Oh, I'm going to get sick now. I kind of pushed myself over the edge. So then it occurred to me to blame UPS. <laughs> Why do they bring it today? <laughs> it, was, it was kind of subtle. It was very subtle, but I saw it. So there was this very subtle movement that I acted on to, you know, to go after. You know, it was kind of the hindrances, right? Acting, the desire. I was uncomfortable, so I went for desire. And then I was uncomfortable, having gone too far. So then rather than, you know, I wasn't going to find any more desires, so I'll blame someone. I wasn't going to blame myself, you know. Normal people don't blame themselves for anything. So it had to be the UPS. So, you know, it was pretty subtle, but I saw it and chuckled. So now the Zen, the Zen stories. Um, the head cook, in Zen, they eat in the meditation hall like this. And so... It's in silence, and the abbot eats with everyone else. And actually, everybody sits on platforms like this all the way around the edges of the hall, and they're eating. And one day, they served a turtle soup. And the abbot called the cook into the meditation hall. And you walk into this room, everybody's sitting there, kind of in meditation, eating. It's very silent and still. It's Zen, you know. And, and the abbot said to the cook, and he pointed his finger into his bowl. And somehow or other, the head of the turtle had made its way into the soup and into the abbot's bowl. You know, it's like finding a fly, you know, in your soup. And so the abbot just pointed. And the cook came in, saw it. It's kind of like the, the uh, strawberry story. He, he picked up the the turtle head, plopped it in his mouth, swallowed it, and left. <laughs> it's called eating the blame. <laughs> so you take it as a kind of fairy tale, but eating the blame. You know, not making a big deal of it, not blaming someone else, just taking responsibility and moving on. When I was uh, 14, 13, my friend and I decided it'd be kind of fun to drive my father's car. We didn't have to drive. <laughs> So we ran it into a bulldozer. <laughs> so I had to call my father. And I said, you know, we just plowed your car into a bulldozer. <laughs> and he said, it made such a big impression on me. It made a huge difference in my life. He said, he didn't get angry. He just said, does it still run? And I said, yeah, but the, uh, uh, the right-hand door doesn't open. And he said, I'll see what you can do about it. And that was it. He knew that I, you know, that I was 
upset, but you know, he, there was no there was no blame. I, I was I was left with myself, left with the responsibility, and and um, and he you know just took it took it that way. Uh, the second Zen story is from Ed Brown story. Uh, he was head cook at Tassahara, and he burned the the uh, pinto soup, pinto bean soup, and. Um, you know, a minute before it had to be served. And in Zen, the food has to be served. It's, it's like choreographed. It has to be served exactly on time. So, so there was no time to do anything else. So he had to serve it, but the soup was burnt. And so he announced before, just before serving, he announced to everyone that today they were serving barbecued pinto soup. <laughs> and afterwards, people asked for the recipe. <laughs> So there's many ways of the present. There's many creative ways of responding to the present moment, but intention. It, intention, the motivation which we meet, what's happened, has huge consequences, and we can feel those consequences. A lot of you, all of you, I suspect, I know all of you, during this retreat, have experienced the consequences of past intentions. The past intentions, the consequences of past intentions are carried in our body. The Buddha said, the body that you experience is the result of your past intentions. And your job is to feel it. He didn't say your job is to criticize it or to be upset about it or just to feel it. It's tremendously healing just to feel the momentum. And in feeling the momentum, the momentum moves and the momentum has a way of finishing. So we feel the consequences. We, feel it in how, we, we, we can see the consequences in how we feel immediately. Um, you know, you can feel uh, uh, firsthand the pain, the, many of you have felt this, how painful it is to be in the middle of wanting mind, full of craving, or full of hate, or full of uh, aversive judgment of other people, over and over and over again. It's painful in the moment to have those kinds of intentions and to be caught by it. Um, or you've experienced how pleasant it is the, uh, in, the, in the moment, the expression of friendship or goodwill or helpfulness or generosity in the present moment. You can feel kind of good about yourself and what's going on. But these things also leave traces. There's momentum over time. It sets up momentum. And it sets it up in our body, in the holding patterns and tension in our body. Um, you can feel it. And sometimes it's uh, in there for years and years and years until you stop enough and quiet down enough that it has a chance to reveal itself. It's experienced in uh, memories. The normal kind of surface mind quiets down, the surface chatter, the surface distraction, the surface defenses we have. And lo and behold, some meditators will find, especially early, early in, their, uh, in their period of meditation, career of meditation, will find very distant memories resurfacing that you haven't thought about for a long, long time. Some of them are unpleasant memories. And after 20, 30, 40 years, people remember, oh, I really treated that person unkindly. You know, I feel really bad about it. And, you know, maybe I should make amends. So you call them up and say, hey, remember that time? No. 
Well, I apologize. It's nice that you apologize. Or sometimes it can be really, really important, pleasant memories. I had both kinds of memories in my early years. But also there were memories of when I was a young child of some really nice, pleasant ways of uh, being, pleasant states of existence that uh, I had denied myself uh, through my teenage years and young adult years. And, um, and somehow the reawakening of those memories of pleasantness from childhood allowed me to open up to that as a possibility again as an adult. So memories, the momentum of memories, if they haven't been processed or taken care of, they're being held, trapped, will, sh will pop up occasionally uh, as people sit. Uh, another way of feeling the, um, the momentum of intentions is in, the, in, in, in the, how intentions contribute to the conditioning of our mind and our heart. It conditions us in how we respond in the future. For example, lying sets up all kinds of different conditions. It conditions us in all kinds of ways um, that's different than telling the truth. Someone said, um, it's, it's good to tell the truth because then you have less to remember. But if you lie, that sets up the condition of being afraid in the future, of being caught. And that fear itself can nudge us towards further lying. Or it nudges us in the direction of mistrust. If we are mistrustful, if we're, if we're lying, if we're mistrustful people, it's actually hard to trust other people also. So it sets up the, up the conditions like that. Trying to get too much done in one day, being kind of greedy or acquisitive or ambitious, and, uh, can make us tired, feeling unfulfilled, estranged from ourselves. If we're running around doing 10 things at once, we become strangers to ourselves, to what's really going on for us. And this sets, that sets up, creates the conditions that when we come home at the end of such a busy day, that we're exhausted and tired and uncomfortable and stressed. And so the desire, just like my desire to make that toy set, the desire is to do something to get away from that discomfort, perhaps. And so some people then will numb themselves out by watching television or whatever else. And that in itself often will continue the estrangement. We're so focused on the distraction, we haven't touched into ourselves and what's going on for ourselves. And some people will spend many, many years running around doing activities that keep them from dropping down into who they really are and discovering even what is really going on, what is their motivation. And underneath the motivations that happen to be running them in the moment, they don't take the time to discover what is their deepest intention, what is their heart's deepest wish, if they really had a chance to ask themselves really deeply, when they're not being run by the surface, surface ambitions and fears and defenses, and really take the time to ask deeply, 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 what is most important for me? They don't give themselves that chance. Now, it's important, I think, to distinguish between the external causality and the internal causality. Because if we act on intentions of greed, hate, there's a, the world tends to respond accordingly. If we act on intentions of, 
awareness, loving kindness, generosity, friendliness, the world tends to react in kind. But the word is the, the magic word is tends. There's no in the external world. There's no guarantees. You can be very kind to someone, and they'll come back and punch you out. You don't know what's going to happen. Uh, it only tends, but it tends to things tends to go in your direction if you have good intent. There's no guarantee. But inner inner causality is quite different. Inner results are the inner consequences on the doer. The intention we do then conditions what happens inside of us. And the focus in Buddhism, in looking at intention, is to understand the, co- the consequences of intentions, to understand the nature of the intention before we do an action. When, when, when someone asks in Buddhist context, should I do X or Y, should I do such a thing? The most common question is, what is the intent behind doing that, behind that choice? What is your intent? If the intent is aversion, maybe you shouldn't do it. If the intent is, is wisdom or kindness, then great. Uh, and there's many, many situations where if you ask yourself what the intent is and ask really deeply and quietly, it might put a whole different twist on your, on your decision and what you might want to do. In a sense, Buddhism is almost a, a religion of intention. Intention is so central to Buddhist practice. Uh, and if anything qualifies as a self in Buddhism, uh, it maybe is intention, our intentions. The, uh, what happens to us, what we've done in the past, you know, what happens to us now is just what happens. But where there's some choice is the intention we bring to the next moment. Um, we don't automatically have that choice. But the mindfulness practice begins giving us that choice. The, the stronger and more developed the mindfulness practice is, the more we see that there's choice moment by moment. The less mindful we are, the less choice there is, the less choices we have. And the less mindful we are, the less choices we, we realize we have, the more likely we are to be conditioned, influenced by uh, society and friends and conditions around us. But as we slow down, as we mindfulness gets sharper and we can see this moment, how am I choosing to act? Um, we see there's choice. When I came back from three years in the monastery, in the Zen monastery where um, almost all, many of the daily choices were made for you. Um, and the tremendous power in that, the power of surrender, letting go of presence, it was really wonderful for me. And then I came back to live in San Francisco and suddenly I found myself in a situation where choices weren't being made for me. I had to make the choices myself. And all the these small choices became consequential. I remember even the way I chose to sit in a chair, I realized it was a choice. Earlier in my life, I thought when you sit in a chair, you know, you sit in a chair. You know, okay, sit down. Every time you sit in a chair, every posture you take, those of you sitting in chairs and those of you sitting on the floor, there's a choice that goes into the way you're sitting right now. How many of you saw that choice that you made? The actual choice, even the way you cross your arms, where your hands are at this very moment. There's a choice that goes into that. And most of us are living our lives so fast and so preoccupied by other things. 
that we don't see the present moment for what is happening, how it's unfolding in the present moment well enough to see those small choices that are going on. And I came back from the monastery and I was fascinated because I said, wow, I have a choice how I sit in a chair. We didn't sit in chairs much in monasteries, so maybe that was part of it. And, you know, do I sit with, you know, kind of a, <coughs> sit in a way that's alert? Do I sit slumping? When I was um, in college, many when I was young, um, one day I was, this isn't, isn't the way, not the way it usually, you know, usually is for me. So there's a caveat first. It's not easy. But I was depressed one day, really depressed. And I came home and threw myself on the couch and slumped. You know, I was like the original couch potato. You know, my, my, my neck was kind of in the crack in the corner of the, you know, just, I was slouching. And at some point I said, wow, this is an interesting posture. And I'm really depressed. What happens if I sit up and take kind of a normal upright posture? It blew me away. Depression vanished. Just like that. Now, it's seldom that easy for me. <laughs> but uh, but that, one, that one event taught me a lot about intention and posture and how the two kind of interact with each other. And I came back from the monastery and saw I had so much choice in such a small, mundane, silly thing as how I chose to sit in the chair. To step off the hundred-foot pole. Though also, another thing about the self and no-self, those of you who are uncomfortable by all this talk about self and no-self, in one of the suttas, the Buddha said, actually, you're not supposed to believe in self, and you're not supposed to believe in no-self. It's a waste of time. I'm paraphrasing now. <laughs> Don't waste your time with those. See what's happening in the present moment. Don't be concerned about a self. Don't be concerned whether self exists or if it doesn't exist. Just take care of what needs to be taken care of in the moment. Isn't that nice and relief? But you have to, you know, but many, many of us bring ourself with us. And we don't just simply take care of the next moment as it's needed to be taken care of, but we see the next moment through the filter of our self-preoccupation or self-concern. And I think if most of us are honest, if we're really careful with our mindfulness to see how we make our choices, the intention behind them in normal life, we see a tremendous amount of self-concern goes into the intentions. An example I read today was, uh, I don't, uh, was uh, of um, a woman who had a roommate, was sharing an apartment with someone, and, uh, and decided she wanted to move out in a couple of months and decided to start looking for another place, but, said that, but decided not to tell her roommate that she was moving out until she uh, really knew she had some other place lined up, even though she was intending to move out, because she really wanted to uh, protect herself, protect her choices. And uh, she wasn't concerned about how difficult it would be for her roommate to find someone new, because it's a you know, roommate-eat-roommate world out there. <laughs> and uh, you know, so, 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 so it's kind of an example of someone who you know, we're protecting ourselves, our particular interest, our particular concern, 
and we're not taking into account necessarily our, our roommates' needs and concerns and how difficult it becomes for them. So I think a lot of times it's kind of self-protective or self-serving or self, you know, we do it for ourselves. American culture is phenomenal. What, uh, uh, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? And I think, uh, this is maybe a little bit difficult to say, but I, uh, because I've, I c I've done both uh, Zen practice and Vipassana practice in America, one of the differences between these two cultures, both cultures have shadows. But one of the shadows of Vipassana, one of the, one of the issues I see in Vipassana is that uh, we leave people alone a lot here. And uh, there's a much stronger emphasis in this tradition, what's in it for me? Rather than, what's in it for the group? You know, you know in, in, Zen, in Zen, you don't, you're, you're as concerned about the group's well-being as you are with your own. You're not protective of your own concentration. You're not protective of your own calm as if that's the most important thing in the world and you have to hold on to that no matter what. But there's a concern and sensitivity to the whole group and what's happening with the group. One of the things we've been talking about is um, the issue of people leaving early from retreat. And we feel somewhat uncomfortable about it because um, we realize many people have to. It's kind of, you know, otherwise they couldn't be here. But I think part where we're uncomfortable about it is that when people leave early, it actually it takes some of the energy away, some of the momentum away for people who are staying all the way. It's a little bit, ever so slightly disheartening, I think, when you many of your friends start leaving and, you know, what about me? You know, I would like to go too now or whatever. <laughs> oh, we're allowed to leave? And, and, um, and in Zen, the way I was trained, you were not, if you, if you were coming to do the retreat, you had to do the whole thing or none at all because you were, you were there supporting each other and that sense of supporting each other was so, was so important. So one of, you might think about that. You know, I, my impression is that uh, we err a little bit on the side of, of being what's in it for me in our tradition. And I think we do a disservice to ourselves because we perpetuate that intention which is always taking care of me uh, in a kind of self-centered way. Um, now, of course, it's important to take care of yourself and take responsibility for yourself. So, it's, so there's a... There's a there's a line here, but I think we tend to err on the side in our tradition of, of, um, of uh, what's in it for me. Now, what's important to realize in the Buddha, Buddha's analysis of intention, he did not analyze them or categorize them as good or bad, which is a tendency, I think, in Judeo-Christian uh, traditions to look at intentions as good and bad, kind of absolute ways. Rather, the Buddha's way of categorizing them was, are they skillful or unskillful? <coughs> are they conducive? Are they helpful? Are they helpful for you or not helpful for you? Is the intention of hate, of aversion, of criticism, is it helpful for you? If you, if you look carefully, probably you'll find out that it's not. Just like uh, Brian Keenan said, uh, uh, vengeance is self-maiming. Is the intention of goodwill, of friendliness to others, and generosity to others, is it helpful for you? Is it beneficial? You probably find that it is, usually, in your own heart. Your heart gets softer, you're easier to live with yourself. Uh, if you're honest, you don't have to remember as much. It's helpful not to have to be thinking about all the lies you have and keeping them, keeping them straight, as um, 
we have a national example of this year. <laughs> How do we meet this moment? What's the intention behind our meeting this moment? So to be mindful of the power of intention in our lives, we have to be mindful. When I started my, my uh, Buddhist practice in Zen, in Zen practice many, many years ago, in a sense, I thought I was developing wisdom. That was kind of my idea of what Zen practice was about, wisdom, freedom, in a rough kind of way. And what surprised me a lot was that rather than developing wisdom, well, I developed hopefully some, I don't know how much, but, uh, but what happened was that in those early years, what was most significantly happening to me was not the development of wisdom. I wasn't getting more enlightened, necessarily, but what was happening was I was developing more compassion. We talk about getting enlightened. Unfortunately, we don't have this word to get compassioned. I want to get enlightened. It's so important to get enlightened. I think it's more important to get compassioned. How many of you have been compassionate on this retreat? How many of your students have been compassionate so far? Yeah? And enlightened? <laughs> <laughs> but compassionate. Go for it. And I think that's really important, the development of compassion. In my, I look back in my early years, that's what was going on. I can give you a whole story about how that happened, but I didn't see it at the time. It wasn't my, you know, my overt intention. I say that here in this retreat also. The consequence of a retreat like this, what's really significant for you, you might not know. You really might not know what was really significant in these two weeks. You might not know for, until six months later or two years later. You think what's significant is the calm you attained or the concentration you gained or your particular understanding of some history of your, in your life. Maybe what was, what was really significant was that, um, was that you did this yogi job with a partner who was just from Mars. <laughs> and somehow in those two weeks, you faced your resentment and anger and upsetness and blame and, and somehow was able to see all that and see how the contraction you formed around that and saw that you didn't have to see it, be it that way and you could see the light of that person's life. And, so, and by the end of the retreat, you felt kind of maybe not totally forgiving, but you felt kind of openness and soft and kind of, you know, ready to meet them in a friendly way at the end, to talk to them in a nice way at the end of the retreat. That, to come to, to have your intention to go from tremendous aversion to coming to, oh, I can meet this person with friendship. Maybe that's what really was really significant, to actually know you have that capacity and learn that about yourself. And all the calm you attained here in these days, maybe that wasn't so important in, in two years from now. Who knows? You don't know necessarily what the consequences are. But there are phenomenal consequences. The, it's, the, our good intent has all kinds of invisible channels in which it works. And it works and brings out of us what we most need. And many of us, what we most need is not more enlightenment, but more compassionment. And I think, I suspect a good many of you have found some of that for yourself this time, this retreat. But to be mindful of intentions, we need to give ourselves the chance in various ways. 
We need to give us a, ch a chance to be mindful. It's not so easy to be mindful. I like it that the Chinese, when they translated the words <coughs> concentration and mindfulness, concentration and vipassana into Chinese, they use the characters stop and look. It's very straightforward and simple. Practice is a stop and look. To have enough pause, enough space, enough presence to look and see what's going on. So how to do this? One of the things that I think is extremely important, especially now that uh, you'll be going home in a few days and having everyday, everyday kind of practice, I think it's more, import more important than sitting every day. I think sitting every day, having a regular daily meditation practice is important. I think it's actually much more important to spend some time each day reflecting, maybe just a couple of minutes, reflecting, taking some space in the day and thinking, reflecting, contemplating, feeling your way into it, whatever way you have. What is your deepest intention you have for yourself? What is a heart's deepest wish you have for itself? Deeper than your surface ambitions and fears. What's deep down inside? It takes a moment to reflect and see what that might be. To spend maybe days and weeks and months kind of working at that and kind of maybe you don't know right away, but seeing what is it? What is really heartfelt for me, my deepest intention? There's tremendous power and intention. And if you can drop into that, and then, then you can see, then you can ask the question, how does the choices I make during this day relate to that deepest intention? How does the way in which I, bring my, I do my meditation practice relate to this deepest intention? Um, it's a way of really empowering our spiritual life, is if we know and see and recognize how it relates to deep intention. Um, another way of uh, developing awareness of intention is becoming aware at the beginning of an action. If we become aware of an intention after an action action is started, after we've started doing something, it's good. It's always good. But if you want to, it's like if you want to keep the horses in the barn. It's like closing the doors to the barn after the horses have left. If you, if you discover what your intention is after you've already done the act, the horse is already out. So to begin looking at the beginning of things, the beginnings of, you know, it doesn't have to be as subtle as here in the retreat, but, uh, you know, at the beginning of a work day, what's my intention for the day? Beginning of a new job, beginning of a new relationship, beginning of a, you know, sometimes when I, go, when I drive someplace, I'll sit in my car for just a fraction of a moment and say, what is the intention with which I'm going to this new place with? There was a time in my, in my life, I did this delightful practice where I'd have a, uh, a date book, like many people have, all these things I had to do for that day. And either, either the evening before or the morning of that day, I would sit down quietly and look at all the things I had to do and people I had to meet and I'd reflect on what my deeper intention was for each of those activities. And it was delightful. I loved it. It was kind of made me happy at the end of doing that. And, and uh, it set the conditions up that that was more likely the way I was going to actually conduct myself when I came to do that activity. So start, start by learning about the intentions for the larger activities of your life, the larger decisions. What kind of work you do? What's your intention in the job that you do? Or what's the intention you bring to that work or to relationship? Is it self-regarding, self-protective, the intention? 
or is it out of service for others or is it out of wisdom? Another useful thing with intention is to take the larger picture into account. Uh, as I, I said earlier, we are, I think all, all too often we're self-serving in our intentions. But to be deeply sensitive to others will affect our choices. It isn't to take others into account and be blind to ourselves and our needs, but to open the field of sensitivity up to the other people around us and include ourselves in that group. That given this bigger picture, what is, what is my heart's wish given everyone's concern, this whole situation? And uh, you'll find you might make a different decision if you, if you allow the sensitivity to include sort of the action. But it's everything to do with the intent. The intention to be friendly to a difficult neighbor may never succeed. But the fact that there is a genuine movement of friendliness and desire for friendliness, it doesn't help the neighbor perhaps, but it helps you. And it begins, it kind of exercises and develops that capacity for friendliness in you if that intention keeps coming on. Don't confuse the results with the power of the inner power of the results of, of intention itself. But all this is not leading to endless, an endless life of monitoring ourselves. Endless effort, always pay attention to our attention, find out what's going on with great effort. As mindfulness becomes stronger, and our sensitivity becomes more present, uh, this awareness of our intentions and motivation becomes more and more effortless. As, and as we understand intention better, greater ease develops, and we act with less and less self-concern, or, le- or at least less and less, less and less self-centered concern. And it's possible to act in life without creating momentum or traces. Much of our intentions have traces and momentum they create. And in a simple way, we understand them. If the, if the intention is self-centered in some way, self-preoccupied, even if it's good intent, it, it sets in motion a certain momentum, certain, a certain traces, certain conditioning, which will affect us in the future. But it's possible to do something with no concern for oneself. Just do it in a kind of direct way. It doesn't create any momentum. It's clean. It's a clean act in the very, this very moment. It's possible to go dancing with the intent to show off what a great dancer we are. Everybody see I'm the best you know, dancer in town. That, has a certain, that, that intention has a certain consequence. It's possible to go dancing and have the intention to help our partner dance better, to help them learn to dance and kind of make them more comfortable as we dance. And that the, the intention to dance in such a way to make our partner more comfortable will have a different inner result than the intention to show off. And it's possible just to dance. There's no intention, just dancing, dancing for dancing's sake, with no concern. And this possibility of just stepping off the 100-foot pole 
leaving our, our kind of ourselves behind in a way and stepping off free, responding to what the circumstances require right now is the fruit of mindfulness practice, a fruit of freedom. To not be concerned with self, not to be concerned with no self, but to meet the circumstance as it is and do what requires to be done. So instead of becoming someone, and in a sense we, be, in a sense we become, our ability to respond becomes greater and greater with mindfulness practice. I, I, the ability to respond, to become responders, to be responders, I think, become clear and clean responders. And being able to, be, to respond cleanly, fully, without self-concern is to enter the dance, the great dance. So we're coming, uh, we have another day of practice. Tomorrow we have a whole series of interviews again. I myself and I think the other teachers are delighted with the way uh, we've had these interviews the first day and idea of interviews tomorrow and meeting you all again. And Guy gave a series of instructions about how to, the interviews would be done tomorrow. And I want to give some of you, maybe especially those of you coming to see me, <laughs> uh, uh, a, a, a possible alternative way of coming in to this interview. And that is um, to uh, reflect a little bit about what intention you have what is, your, what is your deepest intention? The beginning of the retreat, the, the question was, what is your intention for this retreat? As you go ready, to go ready to go back into your normal life, what is the deepest intention you have for your life, for yourself? What is the intention you have for the practice you're going to bring with you back into, the, into, your, into your regular, regular not-so-regular life? So some of you might want to choose that, from, and some of you... Some of you one more specifically, more interested in asking, reporting a little bit about kind of the cutting edge of your practice to really get help and some practice to help you there. And uh, some of you, some of you can talk really fast, can do both in ten, ten minutes. <laughs> so. Um, Thank you. So, uh, please enjoy the rest of the evening. There will be metta at the next sitting. Teachers are getting it together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.